Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. I'm very alarmed that one of our guests may have actually been to Area 51 and had parts of his memory removed. We're concerned. We're concerned as we go on the show today. So this is the nose. It's the end of the week, so it's got to be the nose. Uh, That's our weekly cultural roundtable. Joining us today in studio, uh, well, first of all, making her debut on the nose. How exciting. Kara McDonough, freelance writer. You can read her blog at karamcdonough.com. That's actually, well, I don't know if I should spell it out, C-A-R-A-M-C-D-U-N-A.com. Yep. Kara's uh, making her na- nose debut today. As we said, she was responsible for our crying in the car show, and that's how we got to know her. And we thought, well, she, we can cry in the car with her. We can talk on the nose with her. Uh, also joining us, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance. That's like scratching the surface. That's like between 9 and 11.30 in the morning. She's those things. Uh, and then other things happen. And then uh, recently returned from uh, Rich ha- from uh, Area 51 where he had his memory erased, Rich Holland, uh, principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center, commissioner on cultural affairs at the city of Hartford. All right. So we have like a lot of topics today. Uh, it's going to be a kind of an echo of yesterday's show in a weird way. Uh, we have a lot of topics um, we may not get to all of them. In the second segment, we're definitely going to talk about the HBO series Years and Years, which takes kind of the social and political conditions of 2019, plays them out across an arc of more than 10 years, all through the lens of a multicultural, very diverse British extended family. Uh, and it's uh, at times a little bit unsettling, I think. Uh, all right. But we're going to begin with a whole bunch of other stuff, including uh, – well, I probably should just start singing memories or something like that or uh, cueing the horrible music. So one of the things that has arrived somewhere between last night and this morning, I don't know actually when people started encountering it. You, you encountered it yesterday because you had nightmares, right? I did. Okay, yeah. so what you need to know, first of all, is that in December, there's going to be a big budget version of the musical Cats. It has this terrific, I mean, it really has this wonderful A-list kind of cast that includes, I don't know, Jennifer Hudson and James Corden and uh, Dame Judi Dench, Idris Elba, Jason Derulo, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. I mean, I, and this isn't – oh, and uh, Rebel Wilson. I'm just doing this from memory. So it's a great cast. Of course, Cats is a terrible musical. But neither one of those is exactly what the problem is here. <laughs> Rich, I would say the problem is, is Uncanny Valley the right way to talk about this? They've done – these are not people in Cats costumes. No. And they are also not people. No, it's it's this weird CGI space that it, that exists in this movie, and um, it, or that we saw in this trailer. And the big concern that I have with this with the CGI universe is we're still selling it as something that's new and exciting, and um, and look what we can do. And it's not that at all any longer. It's become so commonplace. I mean, the the one redeeming value of Cats the musical uh, was the costuming and just the the beautiful quality and handmade um, uh, you know vis- visuals that uh, that were created here and as I'm taking a look at this trailer uh, you know what I'm seeing is okay so we put uh, Jennifer Hudson in a bodysuit and then we hit two buttons while we sipped on a yoohoo and out pops some realistic fur and that's just the, not 
not compelling at all any longer. And um, and that being the main hook uh, that seems to be brought into this movie that we could visualize this thing is just not enough any longer. Yeah, the the technology basically seems like Avatar. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you really thought Avatar would be a great musical with cats. uh, (laughs) They look like Avatar. (laughs) They don't look like cats. It is so disturbing. I, I mean, seeing Dame Judi Dench as this alien-like cat is haunting. Mm-hmm. Like, I never thought I could be disturbed by Judy Dench. Well, me neither. Right? Well, I mean, give, well, her, a, give her a chance to <laughs> disturb you. So, Kara, as the new person on the show, you have to pretend you actually liked it. No, that uh, you don't. You don't <laughs> well, I will, I will say this. First of all, I've only seen about half the trailer. What, did you which like is, faint which is, during it or which something? Is, <laughs> <laughs> no, three I minutes didn't, long. I consciousness? Didn't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you could, but I didn't. Um, and I think maybe half is enough. Um, I will say this in defense of Cats. I loved it. You like the musical? When, no. Oh. When I, I, I need to qualify that. When I was younger. Right. When I was a teenager, I loved it. And I actually have a 10-year-old daughter who has the record mm-hmm. on vinyl, loves it. And I am actually a little bummed on her behalf that I'm not excited that this is coming out because if it wasn't so scary looking, I, I think I would be excited for us to see it together. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree with everyone's comments. The the CGI, I, I don't know who that's supposed to appeal to. I think the the moment that you get a little, I mean, there is the, the uncanny valley thing, that sort of moment at which something which is not human, but not not human. It's not inhuman enough to completely depart from all considerations of humanity. Um, to me, it's when they get to Jennifer Hudson and she's singing that song, and I'm just yeah. looking at her, and there's it just is just wrong. It's yeah. so like escape from a chimera lab or something, right? Yeah, I, you had a nightmare. I, yeah, I, I just find this like nightmare inducing, and I love that on Facebook people are marking themselves safe from the cast trailer. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> Amazing. Like, but, I just cannot. I I feel like if we were gonna do this, maybe we should have just actually had like real cats, like CGI. Looking, like the Lion King version, I would have cats. been more comfortable with that. To that be that would have been really creepy to see little tabbies singing Midnight. I don't know. You could do sort of a Puss in Boots kind I, of thing. I, I think, think it could have be been okay. cuter. It yeah, be, it wouldn't be more creepy than this. Yeah. Well, no. you know what I think the thing is for me though is um, there was for me with this whole Cats musical thing, there was a moment where it ended, yeah. right? Um, and it ended with David Letterman on the David Letterman show, and and he. Close it out by singing, Midnight, all the kitties are sleeping, all alone in the basement, no one bothers them there. And that was beautiful. I'm worried and we about were Rich. done. Yeah. <laughs> and we were done with this. Yeah, it right? had its time. It, had, it yeah. had its time. And I think that its time is over and it definitely should not come back in yeah. this format. I mean, you know, when you look at the beginning of the trailer, it looks, because the production values are kind of high, it looks interesting initially, because I didn't like the musical. I saw the musical in 1983 on Broadway. Mm. And, I mean, this, you know, initially you sort of think, you see these kind of dancer cats, and they're jumping on a bed that's, like, gigantic. And, the fact and, that it's know. done to scale is yeah. also disturbing. You didn't like that part either. No. Do you remember what your nightmare was? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to revisit <laughs> it. Right, okay. I don't need people to be visualizing those same horrors. That'll be like a whole show. We'll do her <laughs> Night, Carolyn's nightmares. Uh, all right. We, we need to uh, – we have so many topics. We need to keep going. So many topics, I can't even list them all. So there's been a lot of talk uh, about Idris Elba, who's actually in Cats, um, being the next James Bond. But that's, I think, not going to happen. Um, but what is going to happen is in, in the next movie, 
Daniel Craig's version of James Bond is going to retire. Uh, and um, and there's going to be a different 007, not named James Bond. But I guess Daniel, we don't. We're talking about movies we haven't seen yet. I don't know why we're doing this today, but <laughs> uh, but anyway, Lashana Lynch, uh, who you saw in Captain Marvel, uh, is going to reportedly be the new 007. Uh, and so this seems, I don't know, this seems like a good way of solving this in a way. I think you know, I mean. To, you, 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 I mean, maybe the whole James Bond thing is getting a little bit tired anyway, Kara. I, th- I actually think that this is a great way of solving it. And it's a great way. I have to admit that I am not a huge Bond fan. Um, you know, I've certainly seen the movies and enjoyed them. Um, but, you know, I'm not a connoisseur by any means. But mm. this definitely makes me want to see the next one if this is if this is the way it's going to come out. And it will hold my interest for a long time. So I'm really excited by this news. I think I said this in an email to you guys, but I, I we're later on we're going to be talking about this um, uh, show years and years where it, it is this pretty diverse British family of a lot of different uh, uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, and I sort of feel like that's what Her Majesty's Secret Service has not done so far. Rich, I mean, uh, you know, you see when you see like Killing Eve, there's. I think there's two black female characters in Killing Eve and who are like in MI6 or whatever that's supposed to be. It's sort of like this is what they really need to do is have a secret service that looks like Britain. If you want to stay relevant, sure. Yeah, Yeah, that's how you want to do it. And um, and I think the last couple of episodes, even with Daniel Craig, they were struggling, right? Mm -hmm. We have a – we have a cultural norms that have shifted so far from uh, from what was hip and palatable when Ian Fleming was writing, and to try to still anchor in that tradition, it just has been going stale. Right. You know, and I mean, I even take a look at Men in Black. Well, you know, the new lead is no longer a man. You mm-hmm. know, so so that uh, this idea that we um, uh, that we start throwing gender out the window and take a look at character development and who fits the shoe. Uh, is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is that Daniel Craig, who I think was, at least for the first two of his Bond movies, a pretty good Bond, mm-hmm. who I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be, supposed to be saying 007. Apparently I'm saying 007, and that's causing hilarity in the control room. Anyway, uh, he was a good Bond, but he was like this kind of Ibsen Bond, right? Yeah. He was like this brooding Norwegian guy who yeah. was just like, you know, didn't even understand where he came from. Yep. and which, uh, Very different from the sort of the very confident preppy Bonds of the past or even the semi-brood. Uh, Sean Connery. But there's a sense maybe when maybe they've done everything they can possibly do with James Bond. And it would be interesting to see. Uh, is this a movie you would be willing to go see for the nose? That's a good Carolyn Payne test. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually am intrigued by this because, uh, I mean, I love when you have a strong female lead. And But that being said, I mean, like they tried to remake Ghostbusters with all women and I wanted to be on board with it. But I hated it. I was just mad at it. And so this, you know, this, though, I feel like there is a lot that they can explore. And I think it I I mean, I the only Bond movies I like are the old ones like, you know, like the. Maybe maybe some of the Pierce Brosnan ones because you know he's kind of yummy. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say that. <laughs> but I think that this will bring a whole different angle, and I would see this just out of the curiosity of how of where they go with it. Yeah. Now, okay, we're going to jump from there. We're going to keep moving here. Okay, the next one is one that Rich is not participating in, and I'm barely going to participate in it, and that is Caspering. 
And I could participate in this. You're going to participate in yeah, this? Yeah, I'm, I'm all in. All right, you're all in. Right. So who wants to explain what Caspering is? I will. You'll go, you <laughs> I feel like I explained ghosting, and now That's I'll right, explain yeah. Caspering. So Caspering is, so ghosting, in case you're confused, is where you are in a relationship with someone and you just disappear as if you have died and just cease all communication. Caspering is where you do a more gentle version. And uh, instead of just not responding, you respond with the bare minimum uh, over a spread out period of time. So if someone texts you, you respond like three days later uh, so that that person still feels like they're getting a response and that maybe you're still interested or maybe something can happen. So it's supposed to – it's called Caspering because it's like the friendly ghosting, but it's actually just the worst. Like this is – I think that this is so much worse than at least ghosting. Like eventually you're like, all right, this person is – this communication line is dead. Caspering is just like stringing you along and giving you some sort of false sense of hope and making you live in a personal hell. I'm picturing – I think I'm going into analeptic shock, and then like three days later, how did that work out anyway? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, all right, Mister, I'm going to participate. What do you have to say about this? Well, I mean, I'm riffing off of something that you were that you were uh, saying earlier, Colin. Is that um, do we really need to name all these things today? Um, and uh, I think yeah, we do. And I think that it's that it's an important thing to to name and to call attention to, particularly in the social space, uh, because the social space is completely different from the not social space, you know, that IRL in real life space where, you know, where when someone has lost interest, you could see it because they're rolling their eyes and they're, you know, staring at someone walking by, you know, and so you're getting all of these other cues for, um, for you know, what's going on in the relationship. But boy, when you're just reading these words on, on, on your phone, you have the choice to take them however, you know, you want to. You could choose to believe that that person is into you. And, um, and so there is a kind of responsibility uh, that's put on the social space uh, to be really clear about what your intentions are. So, so I think that um, that as much as we want to be kind of flippant and, and call it stringing along, or you know, or say that that's been going on forever, um, it has a completely different meaning in the social space. All right, I was the one who's being flippant and saying this has been going on forever. I'd like to make that clear. All right, Kara, you have the floor. Okay. So when I read this article, which I said when we were discussing this before, I became extremely uncomfortable. I am not dating. I'm happily married. However, I totally do this to people. And and I want to just be clear, especially because this is my first time in this program and I don't want everyone to hate me, that I... I don't mean to do this, but I do think what's happening, and this is beyond dating, like I said, I do think what's happening in the current digital world is like I, for instance, and I'm sure this happens to all of you, get so many communications via email and text. And what happens, especially with text, is if I open one and in that moment, I forget to respond to it. You know, I've I've got kids, I've got stuff going on. I often forget to respond to it. And what I wish is that there were more ways to deal with with that problem. And I, I, you know, I'm not a tech person. I don't know. But I really don't mean to do it. And then by the time I get back to the person, I am kind of just kind of clinging on. But here's the thing. So like busy people Mm. lead busy lives. And I get that. Like, I'm busy too. But when 
you're, especially in a relationship like where things are starting out, which is where more likely ghosting or caspering would occur, that should be a time in a relationship where you're excited to talk to that person. True. And that there should be this like, oh, I need to spontaneously respond to this right now. Or at the very least, send an emoji. Like, you know, that's a really easy click. Yeah. Like, you can just like scroll through. I'm a big fan of an emoji response to that things if you worst. don't have time. But if you don't have no, time, like at least you're responding. Response. And there are good emojis that are great, like blanket responses for things that you can, you know, go to. And at least then, like, you can respond when you're not busy. Mm. Like, if I'm in the middle of something or I'm, like, you know, ab- right. about to, like, if I'm, like, about to, like, go on stage or something and I just don't have time to actually, I can give an emoji response. So it's clear that I'm, like, actively still participating and not trying to, ig- you know, and not ignoring the person. So, and this I'm talking about specifically in a dating context right, where you are trying to forge a relationship and understand where each of you are. And that's real. That's a, that is a really special time, like the beginning of a relationship. Right. And I agree with that. So when somebody isn't responding early on, I'm kind of like, yeah. all right, okay. you're there, there's just not an, into There's me. another piece to that, right? Because this, the back, this back and forth business can go on all day long. You know, that, that it's like, aren't you cute? No, aren't you cute? It's, you know, emoji, here's my emoji to your emoji thing, you know? And it could just get kind of really tedious when all you want to do is get off the phone and, and like sit with somebody, right? So um, a couple of years ago, I experimented with this thing uh, to see if I could get folks to buy into it and nobody was, was into it because I think people really actually do like these kinds of communications, which drive me nuts. I started ending certain communications with uh, NRN, which is uh, no reply necessary, right? Mm-hmm. To just free people from the need to actually go back and forth. It's like, hey, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, God, don't send me a you're welcome response. Don't do that. That's just, you know, at that point, I'm just going to like you a little bit less. Um, <laughs> just But see, that's where like a smiley face pile of poop is a great response. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that's a great response to anything. Right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> there, there's a promo. Uh, kind of right there. Yeah. I, 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 first of all, I think if you did that, I would be fine with it. I find that the people most likely to – and this is more in emails to say no reply necessary are the people who write to me and go, hey, Snowflake, you know, yeah. you're lucky we trust Trump people don't come and kick your butt. No reply necessary. You know, and I'm like, well, no, I have to reply actually. I want to reply. So uh, anyway, I, I think that – Carolyn is making an important point somewhere in all of these uh, piles of uh, smiling poop. And that is, I mean, to what you're saying, Kara, ultimately most people that you deal with want to know where they are in the pecking order and the hierarchy. And there have to be some people in your life um, who, you know, warrant pretty quick turnarounds. But the problem is if that's only one person, the person you're happily married to, let's say, and your kids, then everybody else is maybe just likely to drift down there and, and become this kind of other kind of flotsam. And then it all c- becomes how cool is anybody going to be about that? But, right. I, but I think most people should just accept the fact that they're not going to hear from everybody for you mm-hmm. know, some time. Yeah, I think it's a tricky world we're in right now and I think it will work itself out. But I do think <laughs> it is hard to respond to everything right. when it comes at you digitally. At least I think so. All right. So we have to keep moving. Got to keep moving. Um, OK. What do we have to keep moving towards? I've actually become somewhat lost here. Oh, Area 51. So oh. the next thing that's going to happen is I think you're in charge of the Area 51 topic. Oh, wow. I feel like okay. you are. So, But I'll set, it, I'll set it up a little bit. So this dude started this thing on Facebook it's called Area 51 Raid. Area 51, I think most people know, is this place that really does exist. The rumor is that it actually is where dead alien bodies are stored or you know whatever. Um, and 
he said, you know, uh, if we all showed up, you know, like if we all, if a million of us showed up, what could they do about it? Um, and then there's probably someone somewhere studying the algorithm uh, that sort of tells you when the number of people clicking, yes, I'm interested. I mean, he kind of did it as an invitation group, you know, how somehow or other it goes from 80 to 400,000, you know, in the space of a few hours. There's just enough connections get made or something. And it's a crystalline effect. But um, so now he's got, you know, more than a million, I think 1.6 million people saying, they, they, they're going to show up and maybe another 1.2 million people saying they're interested. And then there are also some people caspering him. They're probably going to get back at some point, but they, just, <laughs> they haven't yet, yeah. you know. Um, but they really – they like him and they really want to do it. So, OK, you're in charge. Social media is the place where bad ideas take catch fire. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is another one of the great examples of that. Um, I can't imagine a thing that's more dangerous than a group of people laughing and yucking it up in pickup trucks, driving down to a military base with the idea of going to find out what's going on in there. You know, it's it's just a nutty idea. And I'm sure that the guy threw this out initially thinking that it was, you know, kind of funny and it caught fire and suddenly became real. Um, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, that someone had done something similar where they were like, hey, there's a there's a tornado coming. Let's just go out and shoot at it and see if we could turn it around. And, you know, this thing caught fire. There were like 50,000 people ready to go shoot shotguns at this tornado. And um, there's a kind of level of, of nuttiness around it that to me is the most um, disturbing part of the Internet, right? There's this this, this theory out of uh, semiotext uh, that, um, that reads that, uh, the invention of the airplane is the invention of the plane crash. And um, and we're staring at that in social media all the time. Wait a minute. Did they stop the tornado or not? I have to know. Did it? No. <laughs> no, no. No, because because the response to that Darn was it. that a bunch of, of, of public service announcements yeah. and folks on, on television statement, on television station news had to make statements like, please don't go shooting at the right. tornado. We, we, we've, <laughs> no, we've come so idea. far. We've come so far since don't run with scissors. Now it's right. don't gather in a large group and shoot shotguns at the tornado. So, um, so yeah, I would like to point out uh, that since we talked about Caspering, Carolyn has been texting people. Um, and she, she's clearly trying to make up for some deficit that she realized that had, had happened in her life. So, um, um, I, I think she's just copy pasting poop emojis. Yeah, I think it's like, mostly, mostly what's going out there. Yeah. So I think he makes a great point, which is that you know in life there are these situations, and we've probably all been in them, where there's a group of us, three or four or five of us, and somebody has a dumb idea, and then nobody wants to be the person who says no. You know, so like we all do it, uh, and and bad things happen. Mm-hmm. But there's an amplifying effect here on social media, Kara. Right. Totally. I think that um, and I think that if this I think that that is completely what happens on social media. Like what what you first said was um, it's where bad ideas catch fire, I think, which is a perfect, scary way of putting it. Um, And I, I think if this idea when I first heard about it, I actually hadn't really heard much about it. And when I was reading it, I was like, this is hilarious. And it is hilarious until it becomes mm-hmm. real, which, yeah. which, of course, it always does. But, um, you know, the idea of this being a joke, I kind of love. It's kind of a mischievous, funny um, idea. But I, I don't know how at this point they're going to scale it back. Well, what, what happened before you uh, say something, what clearly happened is that some people that this guy, this guy who's kind of a rando guy who started it, 
I, I think people who know him go are going, dude, like the FBI is going to come to your house now because it's going to be, it's gonna be <laughs> really bad, you know? And so he's all over this Facebook thing saying it's all about the LOLs and the memes and that's all it is, just all LOLs and memes and smiling piles of flaming poop. All right, you have the floor. <laughs> Uh, so I, I was actually pulling up the event on Facebook, uh, and then I was terrified to find out that 13 of my friends say they're going. Oh. So those are probably no longer my friends, actually. Yeah, the 13 that never show up to anything. Wait though. a minute. You're not having FOMO? <laughs> no. Uh, but that then that made me think. I was like, well, you know what? Like, I, whenever I – if I post an event on Facebook, like – one time, uh, Alex and I tried to throw a party at our house, and like fifty people said they were coming, and four people showed up. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, to you know, right. the larger degree. I mean, there's what three point one million people going or right. interested. Did you promise the people at your party there would be dead aliens there? Because that that's always a you know. You know, a, uh, I can't remember. Yeah. We promised a lot of things. Right. <laughs> but based on but, your calculus, that still could be 600,000 people. That's what showing I was up. trying to figure right. out. I was like, I wonder how many people will actually show up. She on, was doing the math over here. Yeah, I, I was doing a lot of heavy thinking over here. And, and it, it has an actual date, right? September twentieth. Yeah. At three o'clock. Three o'clock. Wow. Pacific time. Well, first of all, they have plenty of time to get the dead aliens out of there. You know, put them in. Yeah, a, this is giving the government. It, let's say, let's too much time. say that there are aliens there. They've there they've are. moved. They're they are now relocated because yeah, they're going to be by, in a red roof inn in Arizona for like you know a couple of weeks and then they'll move them back in. Yeah. Everybody uh, mistakes them. For I just Harry love Dean the Stanley. wording of "Let's see them aliens." Yeah, let's I see think. them let's aliens. See that them was, aliens. I love it. Uh, that was the motto. Yep. Um, That's uh, on T-shirts by now already, right? Definitely. <laughs> so the good news is we just made it through, I think, five topics or something like that. We are not going to make it to the pronoun they. Um, so that's going to get rolled over to a future show or something, which is too bad because we're going to be pretty cool about that one too. Uh, all right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, what happens when everything happens uh, in the future, in the not too far distant future. And we're back. Uh, Rich Holland uh, is one of our newest panelists today, principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center, commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford, Kara McDonough, freelance writer making her first appearance ever on the nose. You can read her blog at Kara McDonough. It's C-A-R-A-M-C-D-U-N-A. We'll probably put that up on the webpage, uh, .com. Carolyn Payne is all kinds of different things. Probably what I should be mentioning is uh, that you're one of the participants in Big Little Podcast, right? Yeah. Which is coming to the conclusion of its season. Yes. Right. Sunday. All right. We're excited. Uh, we have theories about what's going to happen, but we won't say anything. But Big Little Podcast, for, it's three of our nose panelists who do their own podcast about Big Little Lies. All right. So years and years. Um, it, it, for a while, I think when people talked about it, they said, you know, it's that thing uh, Emma Thompson's doing. Uh, it's really not exactly that thing that Emma Thompson's doing. It's on HBO. Uh, and we're going to play a cu- maybe a couple of clips to kind of help you understand it, uh, but let's begin by that with that Emma Thompson thing. She plays Vivian Rook, a character who, for the, for the most part, never 
least so far, enters the action uh, of the show. In other words, she is a, a uh, Trump-like figure, uh, a Brexity kind of politician who's rising, 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 but almost always, with I think one or two exceptions, seen on television by the uh, people who are, are the real inhabitors of the plot. So uh, you're going to see uh, here Vivian Rook, played by Emma Thompson. Uh, you're going to hear uh, Danny Lyons, who's one of the characters in this family, who's watching this thing on television as Emma, as Vivian Rook uh, talks to a moderator. That woman there in the blue. What would you say to a Palestinian family on the Gaza Strip when Israel has reduced the electricity supply to two hours a day? Two hours. Yeah, I know. I know, but I suppose when it comes to Israel and Palestine, I don't give a f I have to apologize to the people at home. You really can't say that. But I mean it, I mean it. Kiev, Yemen, Qatar, I simply do not give a No, 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 no. If you say that again, I'll have to exclude Well, you. that's the point, isn't it? We're not allowed to say anything true. And all I want is for my bins to be collected once a week, you know. I, I want... I want the primary school 200 yards from my house to pick up its own litter. And, for the love of God, my mother walks with a stick. Could people please just stop parking on the pavements? Could you just stop it? So, ask me about Israel. Ask me about Palestine. Ask me, and I will tell you, I do not give a... monkeys. <laughs> but I have got you listening now, haven't I? Oh, my gosh, she is a monster. I think she's brilliant. All right, so they're watching her on television. Uh, they're having these reactions to her. Uh, but really, Rich, the this is a, a story of a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, family as they begin to wrestle with all kinds of things that we know are happening right now and are going to happen even more as the years do unfold, ranging from the unsteadiness of the world financial markets to increasing refugee crises uh, to uh, increased problems uh, with climate change to possible nuclear exchanges uh, between unstable regimes, one of those regimes being the United States. So I guess the question is, and, and I, you have multiple answers to it, did, have they done anything other than just attach a thread to the pin stuck in this moment and, and, and stretch it out to a future moment in a pretty obvious way? Well, they, to me, that's mostly what they did, right? Um, they they stuck that pin in there, and uh, and they took a lot of um, what's happening uh, with uh, with essayists around all of these issues, and visualized them in a way that they could be uh, absorbed. Um, but I think it's being <clears throat> it's designed in a way that it could be absorbed by folks who are you know pretty much haven't been paying attention, haven't been uh, living this nightmare. Uh, the way some of us have been living it, you know. Um, it, what I think that they did incredibly well with that, uh, once they removed it from the from the kind of essay form, um, is that they uh, peppered it with these uh, rich details uh, that make it vivid. Um, and uh, it, within those rich details, 
are um, some little bits of hope of what survives uh, regardless of these big monsters uh, that come with the intention of stomping out culture. You know, you get to see culture being born and preserved in certain ways throughout this uh, throughout this film. That's uh, th- that's throughout the series. It's absolutely lovely. <clears throat> if I could share one of the examples that I really liked a lot, there was a gathering in in the middle, basically in the middle of a, of a of a green, of a bunch of folks who were storytelling in the old uh, in in old way. You know where. The truth of the story is immaterial. Um, it's that the story was being shared and passed along. And there was this call and answer of click and clack that was going on, which, I mean, from where I'm from, I'm, you know, I was born Haitian, right? That is like such a tradition. clack is such a tradition uh, in Haiti of storytelling. And to see this intention of, of stomping out these, you know, you know, what we know Trump called places like Haiti, um, with the intention of stomping out and, and, re- and ridiculing that culture, to see it actually rise up and still hold together over over time and through this crazy dystopic uh, conditions uh, that could that could arise was a big piece of hope. And I don't think it was the the subject of this film, but it was the subtext that that holds it together for me. Mm. So, Kara, how did this land with you? So. So I really like the show, and um, and I, I went into it not knowing what it was about, which was a neat way to approach it because I feel like we hear so much about shows before we watch them lately. Um, but I really like, Rich, your point about it being sort of almost like an easy, digestible way of looking at what if all these things happen um, in the context of a family um, – which which I kind of thought the show was was doing. This is kind of I was almost thinking about like it sounds silly, but I was almost thinking about you know um, sitcoms or like shows like This Is Us, like where it's like a family. It has aspects of that, but then it's it's a family that's dealing with what if every single thing you think you could go wrong goes wrong. Um, Trump is reelected. Or there's massive world conflict, um, Im- immigration problems, um, and I kind of thought it was. It was sort of doing that in an easy, easily digestible way until um, the most recent episode, which I don't know, maybe not a spoiler. I won't spoil it. But the most recent episode made me think that the creators were a little more hardcore than I than I thought going into it. Right. I mean, there's ways in which there are the shock of the new is depicted in an amusing way. I mean, this is an occasionally a, occasionally it's a funny series. There's a terrific scene early on where uh, the uh, two or two of the parents think that their child is going to come out to them as a trans person, but by, by which they assume transgender. They've got their speeches already. They've got their loving, accepting. We're going to cope with this. And then it turns out she wants to be transhuman. She wants basically to make more and more of herself a machine, ending with her consciousness existing in digital digital space instead of physical space. And they are, of course, not prepared for that. <laughs> Everything completely falls uh, apart. Uh, but Carolyn, uh, just, yeah, what's your overall reaction? So I didn't hate this show, which for me on something that I've had to watch with the nose is like, that's like <laughs> a two thumbs up rating. Um, I, though the show definitely taps into your anxiety, uh, your anxiety of this world we're living in. And because it has this it this central focus of this family there are these there's that like relatable 
where, you know, when a day starts out normal and you just have like those like little problems, like, oh, you spilled a little bit of coffee on your shirt and you're like worried about that. And then the whole day just like devolves into this disaster. And like, you know, you're that that kind of anxiety of like sort of not knowing what's around the corner is like what this show taps into, like where there are these mundane problems that every family faces and you know just the relationships and all of this but then there's kind of this like scary thing happening right around the corner that you sort of can see coming and the show really like builds that sense of and especially when you get to like episode four you're just like oh god this their world the world is just imploding It, it it also raises some to your point carolyn it raises some some really great philosophical questions right um it raises the question of uh at the end of the world what will you do you know where will you be where will you go you know, and, and to to see how that gets played out, mm-hmm. and um, and when it turns out it's not the end of the world, and you went, you know, how that plays out as well, you know. So so there are some some plays with that. I mean, the the um, uh, the woman who the young woman who wanted to to become transhuman in a way uh, was responding to uh, a Ram Das question about um, when you uh, can you. When you're in a place where you leave your body, you know, where others have to care for your body, will it really liberate your mind in a way that it could be so much more expansive? I think that is one of the most interesting concepts in this show, the transhuman Mm -hmm. concept, just on so many levels and how they deal with it. And just the I mean, it's kind of like Black Mirror-esque in that way. I I think the show is Black Mirror-esque in a lot of ways. Yeah. But the difference being Black Mirror only invites us to care about somebody for however long one Black Mirror episode Mm -hmm. is, whereas we build up relationships with these characters in a different way. I also do feel there's a lot of things that feel like future shock in this Mm -hmm. that aren't their present shock. I mean, there are, I think, 4,000 people in Sweden who now can pay for stuff with just their fingers. Their fingers have chips in them. You know, and they just put them up to the chip reader. So, I mean, we're not that far away from. Kara, one of the many things that struck me about this is that we're pretty accustomed to seeing movies post disaster, whether it's something like The Day After, you know, or where we, we see people in the aftermath of a nuclear explosion or some kind of horrific climate change event. Or, and we're also accustomed to movies that are sort of after afterscape movies, these Mad Max afterscapes where just everything is gone away. What we're seeing here is people adjusting, 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 right? Something new happens that's not desirable. So they shuffle a couple of steps to the left and maybe do a different thing. And that's probably how we are going to cope with devolution if that's what happens over the next decade. Right, exactly. That's actually what I I, I think I'm I like so much about this show is that it is. It's just adjusting and adjusting. And there's this – and I think um, something you were saying a, a minute ago, Rich, about what will you do at the end of the world. One thing that's interesting about this show is it's kind of asking the question, well, what if the world doesn't end? What what do we keep doing? And there's this great moment where um, – and I don't think this is giving anything away, but um, the sister who's the activist, I think her name is Edith, mm-hmm. is um, talking about – I think she's talking about climate change. And she says – you know, the human race isn't going to end. That's not what's going to happen. We're just going to keep going. And maybe you'll just be sitting there with your plot of corn, but you're still going to be doing the same things. And I think that this show does that really, really well. And it's it's both really hopeful and also a little bit depressing, you know, that, no, no, it's not going to be this crazy disaster movie. It's just going to be subtle changes to the to the left and the right as we keep moving along. 
there's a piece of that that to me though is is optimistic, right? You know, Definitely. it's the optimism of of subtle changes that you know that we will persevere and we'll survive and everything's going to be cool and um and the systems more or less will you know as Emma Thomas was saying, you know, you know we'll get back to worrying about whether our bins are picked up or not. Um, but then when you contrast that with you know with something that's doing more forensics into what happens in disasters like uh, like the Grenoble series. You know, in which you know they're Chernobyl. taking Chernobyl. Thank you. In which they're they're taking uh, a look at you know what actually did happen in the midst of of that havoc. It doesn't sound anything. Uh, doesn't look anything like um, you know we'll find a way to carry on with our day to day lives at all. Mm-hmm. You know, so there th- that's that's an interesting play that they're doing in in this series uh, where they're maintaining this optimism that you know that will be cool in the burbs. I mean, I, I think another thing that I like, Carolyn, this series does is it takes certain narratives and transposes them onto different kinds of people. People, I, I don't want to do any spoiling, but there's a terrible fate that meets a white middle class character that we associate with meeting third world people. Uh, and so there's a way in which I, I think uh, it moves a little bit more into our field of vision just because mm-hmm. they've done that. And I think one of the things that they, that's ingenious that they've done, as we watch the rise of this demagogic Vivian Rook Emma Thompson character, the the family members most attracted to her, I would say the most, in many ways, the most engaging family member who's this kind of funny, sexy woman with spina bifida who's, you know, uh, uh, by the way, played by an actress with spina bifida, uh, actress also in in a wheelchair. And you really like her a lot and you see her being the person who ultimately cannot resist the rhetoric of Vivian Rook. It, it's her and the activist sister who thinks things are so degenerated that you might as well burn it all down and see what happens. Mm-hmm. But to have the person that you like that much go flock towards the demagogue that, who you know enough to distrust, I think is an interesting device. Yeah, I th- I I saw that coming kind of though. I start – because – there, first of all, the Vivian Rook character I think is is brilliant. Like I love, I love loving a villain, so to speak, in some ways. And that she, I, Emma Thompson, just nails it for the, for me in this. Uh, and the she has that. I mean, I guess I kind of looked at this as like. You know, I always you wonder about people who make choices to support <laughs> support things or people that you're like, really, you're going to get behind that. And here where you kind of you sort of get inside the mind of this character that you are liking. And you're like, well, I see how she is feeling like there is nothing else and like something that she said related. And so I, at that moment, I was like, well, I see where they're going with this. For me, that it was kind of like having a conversation with someone where you're like, all right, well, I see your perspective on this, but let me, let me also, let me, let me tell you this. Mm. So that, that for me was an interesting, uh, I, it was an interesting way to look at like in a Trump land of politics where you, you know, can end up just in a conversation with somebody. Right. Uh, We're going to have to take a break there just so you'll have time to make your recommendations, endorsements, et cetera. So we'll stop there. The series is called Years and Years. It's on HBO. A new one drops every week. We're at four right now. There's going to be no second season or anything like that. The creator has already said he just refuses to do this. When this ends, it ends.
Today's show was produced by magical Mr. McDiaperpants, who appears in Incontinent Cats the Musical this weekend at Great Smoky Mountain Dinner Theater in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And by me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish was eaten by a cat, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Dame Judy Dench. We'll be back on Monday with a premolar scramble. And now, back to Colin. That's right. Remember that uh, next uh, Wednesday is Mueller Prime Day. Uh, so um, I don't know if, they, if Amazon does anything for it, but um, uh, but Robert Mueller will be testifying on Wednesday. OK, um, unless they change it again. It's time to do some endorsements. Our guests are Rich Holland, Kara McDonough, uh, making her debut here on the nose, Carolyn Payne. Uh, Carolyn, why don't you get us going with some recommendations? OK, so last uh, last week I saw Beetlejuice on Broadway. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You were yeah. Sick, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was perfect timing because we did the show about 80s movies, and yeah. then that night I saw Beetlejuice on Broadway. I am not a lover of musicals, necessarily, which is funny because of what I do for a living, but uh, Beetlejuice is really fun. Uh, it, it is like, it's self-aware and snarky, and it doesn't try to take itself seriously. And uh, if you want to just go and sit and just enjoy, just enjoy like two hours of unbridled silliness and really cool special effects, like the lighting and things they do are really inventive. Um, go see Beetlejuice. Uh, it, it is actually it is actually worth your your money and your time. All right. Believe if, it or not. If you spend that money and decide it's not worth your time, you should. You can send me a poop emoji, <laughs> an angry poop emoji. I think Carolyn directly about that. Um, Refunds. All right. So, Rich, what have you got for us? So, what I've got for us today is uh, actually starts today. Mm. It's um, the Greater Hartford Festival of Jazz. Go. You won't miss it. You won't uh, be disappointed. It starts tonight. I have no idea what time. Um, it's at the Bushnell Park in Hartford uh, by the Carousels. Um, first up tonight is uh, Funky Dogs Brass Band, and it closes on Sunday night uh, with uh, Nate Reeves and the Nate Reeves Experience. Um, it's a rain or shine thing, and it's free. And uh, the other thing that I want to add about this is, hey, we talk all the time about, you know, there's not enough going on in the city. Well, there's a ton going on in the region. And uh, this type of programming requires folks to show up uh, so that we can continue to fund them. Um, so let's show up. Let's keep getting things funded and let's keep seeing great things happen in our city. Yeah, I just wanted to maybe just double down that and say there's so much going on in mm-hmm. the city uh, and it's going to be a very busy weekend between that and I think the Hartford, Hartford Athletic is playing uh, its second game over at Dillon. There's a bunch of things going on and I just find between the Greater Hartford Jazz Festival and then Monday Night Jazz also in Bushnell Park, uh, the concert at, concerts at Elizabeth Park, um, uh, you know, there's so many and there's all these noontime concerts. I went up and Saw our friends uh, Self Suffice and Tang Sauce rapping in front of the old state house at one of these Thursday noon concerts. As you say, there's a lot of stuff going on, but it needs people there to, in, in critical mass. To uh, It's going to be so hot this weekend, though. All right, Kara, what have you got for us? So my thing is not uh, really current, nor is it local. But um, there's a writer named Andrea Camilleri, and he's Italian. He actually died this week at the ripe old age of 93. Um, and he writes a series of mysteries based on Inspector Moltobano, who is, you know, a um, troubled inspector, as so many of the great ones are. They're based in a fictional town in Sicily, where the writer is from. And I am a huge fan and was sad to see that he 
died this week and that there um, weren't, weren't going to be any more books, although probably at 93 there weren't going to be any more anyway. Um, but they're great. I love murder mysteries that are set in different countries. It's a weird niche thing that I like um, because you get a lot of the culture and food and you get to learn about a new place, but there's also a really engaging mystery. And so I would like to endorse all of his books. Is it, is it the kind of thing where you really need to start with the first one or can you sort of pick them up anywhere? No, you can pick, you can pick them up anywhere all and right. you'll, you'll soon learn of all of his troubles. Okay. Um, all right. That sounds good. So say the name again for people because uh, I'll just get emails saying, what was that? So the, the writer's name is Andrea Camilleri and, the, and it's the Inspector Multilbano um, series of mysteries. All right. So we said it twice. Don't email me. Somebody is going to do that anyway though. Uh, all right. So I'm going to make an endorsement uh, of um, a restaurant, a fairly new restaurant in West Hartford Pachanga Empanadas Argentinas con Jim Chapdelaine, by which I mean I had lunch there with Jim Chapdelaine yesterday. I don't know if it's as much fun if you don't get to go with Jim Chapdelaine, uh, who's a regular nose panelist. Uh, we're in the process of planning the uh, 10th anniversary uh, event for the Colin McEnroe show, which is turning uh, 10 years old very, very soon. And so I wanted to meet with Jim and get some ideas from him about how to do this. And so he guided me to this new place. Uh, empanadas, of course, are – they're sort of like dumplings. Uh, they're halfway between a dumpling and – I don't know. That's close enough anyway. And these are really cool. And they're uh, all these different flavors. And there's even kind of a guide with uh, – they have a little – they give you sort of a key with shapes so you know which empanada you're eating at any given moment. And you can get three of them plus a salad and it's a nice lunch for you uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Pachanga Empanadas Argentinas con Jim Chapdelaine. I mean I can't really guarantee that he's going to – have lunch with you. But um, but it would be a nice thing uh, if, if he did and if you went as well. So um, thanks very much to, to uh, all of our people here, all of our panelists. I do want to say we've done two shows this week that I think were kind of remarkable in different ways. Um, they're, they're the two most recent ones. Uh, and uh, if you didn't hear them, I'm going to encourage you to go online or download them as podcasts or whatever. Uh, yesterday's show, which was about brevity in culture, about the idea that increasingly there are eight-minute podcasts and 10-minute uh, uh, TV episodes and one-minute album tracks. Uh, and so we, in order to do that show, we actually did a really short version of the Colin McEnroe show and then loaded the rest of the hour up with all these little teeny tiny shows hosted by people like Sam Hadleman, an occasional nose panelist, and Carmen Baskoff, a producer on Where We Live, and Wolfie uh, wrapped the whole thing uh, up for us. And so we tried to make the form of the show kind of echo the content that we were talking about. When I say we, I mainly mean Jonathan McPancy did almost all of the work. I just sat around and had really big ideas, which is kind of like how I function. Um, but anyway, it, it really did come together in a really interesting way. And Matt Farley from Motern uh, Media even wrote a theme song to the Car to the Carmen Baskov show. And, um, so a lot of fun, really interesting, and just something we tried to do that was really, really different. Uh, listen to that. And then also listen to the, to the Ocean Vong interview, the novelist who wrote uh, We Are Briefly Gorgeous. For a time, We Are Briefly Gorgeous. Anyway, he's great. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks to this great panel. We'll be back on Monday.